0: I love it when you read to me. Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences. And they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz.
1: Good morning all. I am Janice Leibovitz. And once again, you are our People of the Book. And I am thrilled to have my guest well, not with me this morning, but from her home in the Cape, Helen Moffat. And I am particularly thrilled to have Helen with me this morning because she is recovering from COVID-19. Welcome, Helen. Hi, Janice. Thank you for having me. I am really, really thrilled that you were able to join me this morning. How are you feeling? Truthfully rotten. Um-
2: but clear-headed which is uh uh frankly when i feel when i feel this awful it's a good sign it means that i'm grumpy and alive and um clear-headed and that's uh, something to be thankful for right trust me i'm very thankful
1: <clears throat> and and as you've told me it it's, a, it's it comes and it goes and it's not something that you are sick for a few weeks and then it just goes away it's something that just lingers and you're grateful for every good hour
2: absolutely and i'm hoping this will be one of them and in fact it probably will be because i find any kind of human contact stimulates my immune system i certainly feel much better afterwards so once again
1: thank you for having me It's an absolute pleasure, and I hope that this does you the world of good. So by way of introduction, we're going to be chatting about Helen's new book, which is called Charlotte. And I'm going to tell you a bit about that shortly. But just to introduce Helen, Helen is an editor, an academic, a teacher, an activist, a mentor, a poet, and an environmentalist. That's that's the short description. Um, as you can see, she has an extremely illustrious background and she's written this book, Charlotte, on the back of what is, I can only describe, an extremely illustrious career and we're going to be chatting about that after this ad
0: break. I love it when you This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz.
1: I'm back with my guest, Helen Moffat. And before the break, I was describing her extremely illustrious background. But today we're going to be chatting about her new book, Charlotte. Charlotte is described as a sequel to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Is it actually a sequel, Helen?
2: Yes, it is, but it's from the perspective of one of the um, the lesser characters in the original, uh the heroine Lizzie Bennett's um, older, plainer, poorer best friend Charlotte Lucas. So it's a sequel to Pride and Prejudice, but um, but from the perspective of Charlotte and it tells us what happens in it tells us what happens next. But in her life and from her perspective, so although you do get to see what happens with uh, Lizzie Bennett and the rest of the Bennett family and Lizzie's marriage to Darcy, those are all secondary concerns. What I really wanted to do was to tell Charlotte's story. So um, I pick up seven years after the end of Pride and Prejudice, although we do look back in the novel at some of those events that will be very familiar. You know, you don't even have to have a read Pride and Prejudice. Um, although it does help if you've read the book or if you've watched the movies or if you've watched the T V series. Okay, so, so I'm gonna
1: be I'm going to be very honest with you here. I haven't read Pride and Prejudice. I haven't read Jane Austen. My mother was horrified when <laughs> I admitted this to her the other day and she said Jane Austen is one of her favorites, and I didn't know that, and, and as listeners will know, I'm discovering quite a few things about my mother in, in recent weeks, um, a lot that I didn't know. I didn't know she liked Jane Austen. Clearly, she didn't pass that down to me. She, she never told me to read these books. She never gave them to me to read, and I had never read Jane Austen before. And I haven't actually seen the films, although I hear Colin Firth features. Um, so, so I have read most of Charlotte, and and you very cleverly do give um, a brief retelling of, of some of the Pride and Prejudice story in it to give some background. But to me, I mean, I, I wouldn't have called it a sequel. I think some of it runs in parallel, and then. It, Continues, Um, but it's 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 a story of of another character. How did you how did you come to write it? Why did you want to write about Charlotte? Oh boy, Um, right.
2: (coughs) It's uh, I'm trying to think how not to make this a very long story. You know, when I first read Pride and Prejudice. And I'd started reading Austen as a teenager, but Pride and Prejudice was not my favorite book. And when I did it at university at the age of 18, I was in a lecture with the fabulous John Hayward, who was teaching it to us. And somebody sort of made some disparaging remark about Charlotte. And our lecturer said, you know, this woman... What options did she have? Yes, she jumped into an expedient and loveless marriage, but that was literally her only life choice. And once she'd done that, she didn't sulk, she didn't repine, she didn't moan. There's not a trace of self-pity. She fulfills her bargain. She says, right, you've given me a marriage and a status and standing in society and a nice home. I'm going to make everything really nice for you. I'm going to make your life, Mr. Collins, the fawning clergyman, run like clockwork. And I thought, oh. And then, of course, you know, I was a young feminist and I thought, you know, Charlotte's life was not that very different from an enormous amount of women around the globe, um, where literally their only chance of advancement in life is via a man that they marry. Right. So... I was always interested in Charlotte, but it never occurred to me to write a Jane Austen sequel or Pride and Prejudice sequel. And then four four or five years ago, I can't even remember now, um, I was on a writing retreat with um, my co-conspirators, co-authors and two of my very, very dearest friends. Well, well known to you and the writing community in general. It's interesting. We all we are all either Jewish or we have Jewish connections. Yes. In the case of, so I'm talking about Paige Nick here and Sarah Lotz. Yes. So are um, <clears throat> Page, we went off for a writing retreat in Ireland. We were all three of us in Europe that summer. And. Sarah and I were on the wooden deck looking out over the Irish Sea one night with a bottle of red wine, and Sarah said, I was very sad at the time, and Sarah said, no, come on. You have got to do something constructive with all of this grief. You have got to write a novel. It's the only thing you haven't written yet, because, as you said before, um, you keep describing me as illustrious, which is basically code for easily bored, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I can't imagine you as bored. Well, no, I tend to write something and think, hmm, okay, done that. What should I do next? Something new. So Sarah said, you've got to write a novel. And she said, okay, <clears throat> if you could write any novel in the world, anything, what would you write? And without hesitation, I said, I'd tell the story of Charlotte Lucas, Lizzie Bennet's uh, uh, best friend in Pride and Prejudice. I want to know what happened to her. I want to give her not necessarily a happy ending because life doesn't work like that. But I want to explore her life. I want to know what it was like. I want to know how um, apparently powerless woman who was a legal minor who was in you know <clears throat> in early nineteenth century Europe, certainly England, she would have been. A chattel. She would have been the property of her first her father, and then handed over to her husband. So I wanted to know what kind of what kind of independence and agency and choices and power did someone like that have? I was also very interested in what Lyndall Gordon, who is also very very well known to your listeners as as a member of the literary Jewish community, yes. I was very interested in what she called domestic feminism, where um, instead of kind of poo-pooing the domestic arts and housework and, you know, sort of the whole incredibly laborious intensive labor of just keeping society going by feeding the babies, by doing the laundry, by growing the food, by preparing it. And I... I like this movement in literature whereby this, instead of being dismissed, is looked at and paid the same kind of proper focus and attention that we would pay the sort of people doing so-called professional jobs, like being lawyers or accountants. So I wanted to plunge into that whole world, and I did. Yes,
1: you certainly did. And... and Let's be honest, Charlotte, although she was, she was, she was quite looked down on for being plain and, and she was quite invisible in comparison to her friend Elizabeth Bennett. She manipulated herself into that marriage. She manipulated Mr. Collins. Um, although, yeah, yeah she, she did quite cleverly. And, um, after the break, we will, we'll chat some more into, into um, how she does that and and what comes of that afterwards. We'll be back after this break. I love it
0: when you read to me This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz.
1: I'm back with my guest, Helen Moffat, and we are chatting about her new book, Charlotte, which is considered a sequel to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And before the break, we were chatting about character of Charlotte, considered the plain friend of Elizabeth Bennet, the character in Pride and Prejudice, as many people will know, and the fact that she manages to create an opportunity for herself by getting Mr. Collins to marry her, which in fact, considering the fact that nobody considered her of much worth was really clever, I thought.
2: Yep. Yeah, Charlotte is no slouch. She, um, and I took that as kind of like the fuel that drove her character, that when Charlotte sees an opportunity, she goes for it. Um, she had a surprising amount, in the original, she had a surprising amount of drive. She was constantly looking around society and looking at the way it worked. Uh, it was also very clear from *Pride and Prejudice* itself that she's one of life's natural kind of diplomats and peacemakers. Um, she's very good at pouring
1: oil on s- troubled social waters, um, but she and she, begin- she never got she never gets much credit for that. She she's she's a bit of a plot. You know, she just continues. To to do what she does, she's an extremely resourceful character, but never really gets much credit for it. And she actually raises her husband's standing in yeah. in the eyes of other people because he he's looked down on. He's 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 very awkward, and people don't think much of him, especially after um Lizzie Bennet sends him on his way. Yeah. And and she 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 creates much more of character for him. He's less awkward, he becomes more sensitive in the way you've you've written him, and the way you've created him. And that's all down to Charlotte and and the way she looks after him and the home she creates for him.
2: Well I'm glad you picked that up because it certainly wasn't my intention. You know, so I didn't read Pride and Prejudice all those years ago and think, well, I'd like to rehabilitate the character of Mr. Collins. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. His long-standing jokes. Uh, you know, everybody finds him ludicrous or ridiculous. Um, yes. But I thought, okay, Charlotte has to have a life with this man. You know, there there, there was no divorce. You know, she was in it for better or for worse. And she was going to have children by this man. And in fact um, this is, even at the end of Pride and Prejudice, we learn that Charlotte is expecting. So I thought, okay, to make Charlotte's life bearable, this character has to have some redeeming qualities. But then I thought, well, what is the one thing that could possibly redeem him? And I thought, it might be his love for his children. Plus, In Pride and Prejudice itself, although Jane Austen treats it as a joke, one thing that is clear is that he really does appreciate his wife. He may not be in love with her, but he's terribly, terribly proud of her. Um, You know, he brags about her and her skills to anybody who would listen. And I thought that was quite sweet. Um, Yes. So... um, I took those two things, that he was terribly proud of his wife. Admittedly, a lot of that was very pleased with himself for being clever enough to marry her. But um, he was proud of her, and then I invented, because we don't see it in Pride and Prejudice, a great love and tenderness for his children. And then with that, but as I said, you know, sort of, I just sat down and I just wrote the damn thing. I didn't think, right, how am I going to rehabilitate the character of Mr. Collins? Um, I just wanted to know about Charlotte's life. Yes. And the interesting thing was, was that the original novel was um, that, that I gave to my publisher was quite different, and it was very much a retelling of Pride and Prejudice but from Charlotte's perspective. And my publisher said, you know, we want much more of Charlotte's life after she got married. I want you to expand all those sections. I want more about her life as the wife of the parson of Huntsford. I want more about her children. I want more about what happens next. I want more about her adventures. So I thought, oh, okay. Um, oh, my goodness. I get to make this up. And at that moment, it, it is, it is a very weird experience as a novel, as a novelist who's dealing with well-loved, um, and beloved characters. Cause I thought, oh my God, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> you know? And, and then I thought, oh, i i I'm only tampering with, you know, one of the most beloved classics of English fictional history. But, you know, that's what we do. You know, we wander in where angels fear to tread. And um, so I did. I um, I made up more and more and more of Charlotte's life. And that meant that I had to um, pay more attention to Mr. Collins, as well as all of the other characters around her. You know, because, you know, that early manipulation, or rather that sort of slate of hand, where she sees an opportunity and she goes for it. I thought, how is that game? That's
1: not a one-sort. How is she going to repeat that
2: over and yes. over again for a married and, and, life?
1: And make that part of, of of her personality and part of her character and who she is. So I show her managing her
2: husband. I show her uh, uh, managing Lady Catherine de Bourgh. this dreadful old tartar in the original. Um,
1: and I Lady sh- Catherine's daughter, Anne, as well. She's a bit... Um, she seems to be a bit bemused by by her relationship with with Anne and the way Anne befriends her,
2: yes, and in fact, my publisher asked about that, but um uh, you know sort of it's not too much of a spoiler to say that the book starts with a great and a terrible in fact an annihilating loss for charlotte and my publisher said, why does Anne suddenly, after seven years, befriend her? And I said, so much that happens in Charlotte's life is set in motion by this terrible loss. It has these, it has this ripple effect on people around her. And that's what gets her friendship with the character of Anne de Berg, Lady Catherine de Berg's, um, daughter. daughter. yes. And then I had to be really careful because Anderberg is this pale, listless, fretful, feeble character in Pride and Prejudice. Well, she damn nearly ran away with the book. Yes, you gave, you gave her a, a new life. Well, she really, I mean, uh, uh, there were whole chunks I had to take out because at times... You know, she ran away with the story and I started thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, I, you know, I'm writing Anne de Berg's sort of story here, not Charlotte's. But the point is, is that Charlotte manages people. She manages her husband. She manages
1: her superiors. She even manages Lizzie. To, yes, uh, and, and, with, and I want to move on to that because um, otherwise we're going to run out of time. And I want to move on to her visit To Pemberley, she takes her daughters, she's invited to go and spend time with Lizzie at her home in Pemberley, and this is where she meets her Rosenstein, 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 I'm not sure how how you pronounce his name, and Rosen, Rosenstein? Rosenstein, Rosenstein, so, we're going to chat predominantly about him because you were meant to do a session at JLF um, Jewish Literary Festival in March, which as we all know was canceled, unfortunately. And your topic was going to be writing Jewish characters when you yourself are not Jewish.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I've been thinking about this question ever since the panel started. And my first and honest answer is I have no idea how that happened. (laughs) I don't know where I got the chutzpah. Um, You know, he he's not based on anybody I know. He literally just, arrived, he appeared. And I was thinking about this question last night because I was thinking about this interview. And I realized he's the only character in the book that appears nowhere in Austen's world. He, Every other character in my book appears, even the servants appear somewhere in Pride and Prejudice. Um, And Yet we have this musician. He's Austrian. He's Jewish. He's highly educated. He's utterly charming, and he
1: just appeared from nowhere. Now I just, can I just interrupt you for a second? Not only were you writing this Jewish character with with no no not being Jewish yourself, but you were writing about a Jewish character in the Regency era, which yes. is completely different from writing a Jewish character today. Because it 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 completely it's completely different. Oh.
2: Yes, no, I mean anti Semitism was sort of considered normal at that stage in history. Um, oh absolutely. It was, you know, sort of and, and I explore that a little bit. Um I also wanted, you know, there's that scene, um, when they're all drinking hot milk in the kitchen where he's explaining some of the prejudice and some of the bias, um, that he encounters absolutely naturally because everybody took it completely for granted, you know, sort
1: of that these Jewish people were useful if you wanted somebody to, um, to tune yeah. a piano, yes, or to tune, tune an instrument or to come and fix something. Yes. You know that, they, they, that the that the craftsmanship
2: was, and the the creativity and the, the, the all that sort of thing was highly recognised and admired, but um, this made you know sort of, but it didn't make people any less anti-Semitic. So I did explore that, and um, I did you know, and I did ask my better readers, um, my beta readers, to look at that carefully. And I had long conversations with especially Sarah lots about it. And of course I got paid to go through the manuscript very, very carefully. I thought about getting a specialist Jewish historian as a better reader. And, um, and then I eventually decided, you know, the book was from the perspective of Charlotte. And the point is that Charlotte is utterly ignorant of everything
1: completely then, because, because when Lizzie says to her, um, oh, but didn't you know he's a Jew? You know, his name's Jacob. I think his name's Jacob. Because she just she just refers to him as, as her Rosenstein. And she says, but didn't you know? Because she hadn't actually asked for his first name because that is their way. They refer to each other as Miss, Mrs, Mr. And because he's Austrian, he is her Rosenstein. And she says, but didn't you realize he's a Jew? And she says she has never come across a Jew in her life.
2: No, um, you know, I wanted something, comp- I suppose, I mean, I was influenced by George Eliot's Daniel Deronda, but I suppose I also wanted, and then, of course, you know, sort of a, a, a few decades after this, Disraeli became prime minister in, in, in England, but I wanted something comp- completely, completely outside of Charlotte's experience. And the one line I had <clears throat> an ongoing debate with my publisher about is that thing where she says to him in complete ignorance, um, I did not know you were a Jew. Does this mean you are a heathen? Yes. And my oh, you can't say that. And I said, I want to show, demonstrate her utter, utter ignorance of this world. And yet it's a world she, in terms of making a friendship, um, which she does with Jacob um, and building a relationship with him, she jumps across every single barrier. He's not English. He's not the same religion. Um, You know, he's he's in some ways a tradesman. He's in that nebulous position in 19th century society whereby he wouldn't exactly have been a servant, but he would have been in the same position as um, a tutor or somebody who is engaged to come and paint a portrait. So neither fish nor fowl. So in spite of all of the differences of nationality, language, religion, class, he and Charlotte still form this close bond, um, largely once again, as, um, and I use them as kind of communicative devices throughout the novel in all the relationships, largely through her children. Um, yes. And it's, and it's James Great kindness to her children and he does something wonderful for one of them, which I won't tell everybody. Spoiler. But, but I wanted, I wanted Charlotte to go from zero knowledge, you know, absolute ignorance of Jewish people, their cultural practices, their religion, their faith. And that's why, I, and I also wanted to show that Jacob is quite accustomed to anti-Semitism and ignorance. You know, he laughs at Charlotte when um, she wants to know if he's a heathen. And she explains it to, you know, he, he explains um, that he is, you know, sort of that he and his tribe are people of the book. Um, so, yes, I still with hindsight thought, I don't know how I had the chutzpah to do that. I really don't. And I you know, don't know where he came from. You know, he just you know appeared. He just appeared. Uh, maybe I am channeling my Jewish grandfather. I have no idea.
1: <laughs> Clearly, because he, I mean, he, and he, I mean, he plays a, a quite an important role here. Yes. Um, despite the fact that he comes in and and as you say, he's got that that nebulous in between role, and he doesn't eat with the servants. He he starts off eating, he takes his meals on his own, and you, you don't quite know where he fits in he's not one of uh, one of the noble folk he's not one of the servants he he's He's just there
2: yes, he doesn't come to the morning prayers in the household chapel um, uh, and that's actually how she discovers that he's Jewish. Yes, she says to um, Lizzie quite innocently. She says, "Well, where is he? Why doesn't he come to prayers?" So um, yes, so, so as I said, um, he just sprang. F- you know, as, as you know, sort of there, there's that very kind of I think one of the 19th century novelists, lady novelists, wrote this sort of thing. He sprang fully formed from my pen, and I always thought. <laughs> Terribly loaded our way to write about a character, but then it happened to me, so I can't laugh at it anymore.
1: Because yes, now now he has appeared. So you've we've discussed him, and we've spoken about Anne. I'm going to go back to Anne
0: mm-hmm.
1: because Anne becomes. It, she, she becomes, she's this free-spirited, she shows this free-spirited independence mm. that, uh, well, I don't know about anyone else, but I just wasn't expecting. It's completely unexpected and she actually becomes quite a, a clear representation of, of early, she's quite a feminist actually. Absolutely. Um, Yes,
2: as I said, I had to be very, very careful with Anne. She very nearly ran away with the entire story. And that was something... I wanted to do right from the very, very beginning. I wanted a kind of a, you know, sort of, first of all, it was based on Pride and Prejudice itself. You know, sort of, I looked at this feeble, listless little character and Lady Catherine is sitting there sort of planning that she's going to marry Mr. Darcy. And it's very, very clear from Pride and Prejudice that Anne is going to marry nobody. absolutely, an account of her ill health. And I thought, well, it's very clear that Anne is never going to marry or have children, you know, because of... And I thought, is this interesting? interesting. She's actually almost a queer or intersex character. She's not interested in courtship. She doesn't need to be courted or to get married because she is the only one of Jane Austen's heroines who's actually managed to have her own property settled on her, which, by the way and I don't know what Jane Austen herself is thinking, is
1: actually legally impossible. And she knows that. And and we're going to, I'm going to ask you something, um, we're going to investigate that more. We're just going to take a break right now, and we'll get back to that afterwards. I
0: love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz.
1: I'm back with my guest, Helen Moffat, and we are chatting about her book, Charlotte, which is a sequel in type to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And before the break, we were chatting about Anne de, de Bourgh, de Lady Catherine's daughter, who in Pride and Prejudice is a frail, kind of ill, invisible character, and Helen has very creatively set her free, and in Charlotte, Anne becomes this free-spirited, independent, quite fabulous character here, and she befriends Charlotte, much to Charlotte's um, surprise. And I love, I love this character. She's absolutely amazing, and she surprised me. You know, whenever she appeared, she surprised me more and more in her letters, in her actions, in everything she did. And before the break, we were chatting about her, her prospects, basically. her The obvious fact that she didn't want to marry, she wasn't going to marry, she wasn't going to have children, but what was going to happen to her? Because as we, we discussed earlier and as we knew, it was actually impossible for her to inherit her mother's property,
2: Yes. Uh, Look, it's interesting that Anne surprised me every single time she showed up when I was writing as well. (laughs) I know that very, 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 very early on, in fact, even that night sitting on the deck with Sarah, I had a vision of Anne galloping across the landscape. And I don't want to say too much about that because I don't want to create spoilers, but I definitely saw her as this kind of Orlando, Virginia Woolf's Orlando or the historical character of James Barry. I definitely saw her as that kind of figure. And I was like, Hey, wait, what, where did that come from? And the fact that Jane Austen merrily, um, makes it possible that for, you know, sort of in Pride and Prejudice, uh, Anne is the heiress of Rosings. And actually, historically and legally, at the time that Jane Austen was writing, that was not physically possible. When Lady Catherine died, Rosings should actually technically have been inherited by Mr. Darcy. And yet she manages, you know, she brags about the fact that she had managed to settle the estate on Anne. Well, that couldn't be done. Um, And the only way it could be done was temporarily until such time as Anne's marriage or death. So I was fascinated by this, you know, sort of why did Jane Austen do that? And it meant that she created one, she created a single female character in the novel who was frail and fretful and feeble and a non-entity. But she's the one completely independent woman in the novel. And yes. she, that means she can do whatever she likes, which she does. And I wanted to show her waking up to the reality that she had social constraints, which she finds a very interesting way of getting around. But, um, I was interested in Jane Austen's latent and unspoken feminism that she creates this, 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 this fantasy in which a woman is genuinely financially independent, she owns all of her own property. It is not in the care or possession of um, a father or a husband. So I was fascinated with what would Anne do with that kind of power and that kind of freedom, and why did Jane Austen give it to her in the first place? And the other thing about Anne was that, and I didn't plan on this, is that, you know, sort of she became... She she became what I think the politically correct turn um, uh, uh uh today is that she's not neurotypical and has no filter on her tongue whatsoever. She either is silent, but when she speaks, oh boy, she opens up her mouth and the unvarnished truth just comes out. So um and this in an era of great social constraint and very formal and scripted conversations. So as I said,
1: I had to be very, very careful with her. She very nearly ran away with a book. I think, I've, I think nowadays they would probably um, describe her as being somewhere on the spectrum. Yes. Um, <laughs> most definitely. And um, also her sexual orientation is alluded to. Yes, and
2: the, that was also something interesting. my publisher said ooh, let's let's give her a relationship with one of the serving maids or something and I said no to me to my mind she's asexual um, I, I, I I don't want her yet another character in search of romance, but just simply on the uh on the gay side of the spectrum, I want her to genuinely conceive of a life in which she says very, very honestly, I'm sorry, I'm never going to marry. I'm never going to have children. I can't bear the idea, but look at all of the ways I make my life interesting in other ways.
1: So yes. And I think it's just, it also is more powerful when it is just that illusion an illusion, and it's left to the reader's imagination to decide for themselves. Well, is she, isn't she, what is she? You know, you don't always have to actually spell it out for the reader.
2: Yes, no, and and I didn't want to. That's exactly what I was trying to do, and I didn't want to. And I also, once again, if I had, it would have, you know, I would have had to have called the book Anne, not Charlotte. Exactly, and I didn't want her to take over any more than she already had. But um, yes, I had enormous fun with her. And as you can see, a very dear friend of mine took me on a trip to um, the south of France, and it all showed up in
1: you know, but yes, that they shows up in the book as well. Which is fantastic and, and, and again, very surprising. Yes, no, I didn't see that coming either. It's like, oh, where did and this Charlotte? Come? Charlotte certainly doesn't see that coming.
2: Yes, no, she sure doesn't. I didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. Writing is a weird business, let me tell you. And I thought I'd okay. done lots of it, and but but this was a completely new ball game. It was a completely new adventure. I didn't know that you could have characters who literally would just sort of pop up from nowhere, like Jacob does, or you could take a minor character, slight character, and then run away, you know, sort of literally grab the steering wheel and gallop off, you know, sort of into the sunset with you sort of
1: trailing in their wake. I'm always quite fascinated when authors say this because um, having not written a book myself, I'm fascinated when authors say that that the characters write themselves and run away with... With their own ideas and do their own thing, because I tend to always believe that the author is in control. But apparently, that is not the case.
2: Yes. No. It was very humbling because, as you know, I've edited an enormous amount of fiction, and yes, I'm so. So I was all, always, you know, when 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 my authors used to say, "But for character," right away and did X, Y, and Z. I'm like, "No, you're in charge." Well, it was very humbling because. Um, I very often sort of sat at my laptop and thought, what? Where is this coming from? Oh, well, better sort of have it while it's on the move.
1: We're going to take one more break. And then after that, we're going to be back and we'll be chatting about when Charlotte is actually going to be available in South Africa.
0: (laughs) I love it when you read. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz.
1: I'm back, and that was a lovely surprise to hear my rabbi's voice um, over the radio. That was really lovely. I'm back with my guest, Helen Moffat, and we're chatting about her new book, Charlotte, um, a follow-up to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And I'm sure you're all wondering, when is Charlotte going to be available in South African bookshops? So... Helen, I'm sure you're wondering the same. Yeah, it is. We are
2: utterly and absolutely in the hands of the pandemic. The virus will determine. What, I, it is a very, you know, what we did is it was supposed to launch on the 14th of May. Oh Lord, I could weep. We were going to have this huge, launch and an after party at the fabulous book lounge in Cape Town I was going to take it off to Franschhoek and then I was going to jump straight onto a plane, go off to the Bath Literature Festival and then all of the London and UK launches oh lordy and of course that didn't happen because the day Charlotte got sent to print and she's printing in the UK and they were going to then ship it out here Um was the day the British lockdown started. So Charlotte, oh, my
1: goodness.
2: It, and they literally sort of locked, the, locked up the printers and, you know, threw away the key and walked away. So Charlotte is sort of literally in a warehouse somewhere in the UK and who knows when she will ever emerge in physical copy. I mean, they're talking about September, but we don't know. We have absolutely no idea what lies ahead.
1: So because it was actually, it was actually meant to be sent out here and your UK publisher, um, Bonnier, who you actually have a two book deal with, um, so, so there's going to be a sequel to Charlotte, right? Um, they were going to, to launch this as part of, of a new imprint that they were doing. It was going to be launched with three other books. Am I correct? Absolutely, you've done your
2: homework. Oh no, this was going to be a whole new thing. They've they 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 created a special new imprint for what they called literary fiction and creative nonfiction and translations and you know sort of Charlotte was going to get all of this extra special attention in TLC. She was going to be one of the four flagship titles with a special new imprint called um, Manila. Um, and it was all going to be happening. And now it's not. And you you were going to wear
1: your Regency bonnet, right?
2: I got to wear a lampshade. I promise, it is a lampshade um, on my head that I took off a charity shop lamp. And my so instead of this glittering launch of this fabulous new imprint, oh, you know, they planned. Parties for it, and um, especially it's,
1: dev- it's devastating. It is devastating, and and I mean, you know, you are not the only one, but it doesn't make it any less devastating.
2: No, it was, you know, sort of, there, there's this thing of, you know, sort of to have your, you know, your, your, your wildest dreams, beyond your wildest dreams, come true as an author, and then to have it all just disappear in a puff of smoke, or in a cloud of germs, in this particular case, it's just been one of the, you know, sort of fortune, you know, you know what, it's just as well I've been so damn sick, because I'm so bloody grateful to be alive, Um, that you know, sort of whenever I want to weep and wail and kick and scream about Charlotte, I think, well, Helen, at least, I mean, I mean, there was, You're there was, literally there. there were a few days where I thought, hmm, you know, sort of, I wonder how sure, you know, I wonder if, if me dying is going to bump up Charlotte's sales or not. Oh, oh well. <laughs> you know, my heirs will have to cope with that, but you can get it as both as an audio book and we have the most Beautiful, beautifully voiced young actress. She is also be- physically beautiful, but she has the perfect voice for Charlotte, Isabella Inchbald. And she has already worked with Emma Thompson on the audiobook of Emma. So she has good Jane Austen form. And so you can buy the audiobook from Audible. And of course you can buy the ebook, um, from Amazon.co. And I think it, you know, sort of that you can get it from Kobo. So, Sal, South- African readers can get either the audio or the ebook, but and this is a huge apology. My American friends can't get it at all, and I feel oh t- my goodness I feel terrible about that because they're so interested and so keen, and they've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and now courtesy of this bug and um, you know world history just generally, and copyright laws.
0: Well, we will
1: have to just keep track of that and we will have to wait until your beautiful copies are here because the cover is absolutely beautiful and we will keep track of that. And I will keep you all posted on when that will be available. And in the meantime, as Helen says, it's available through Amazon and on Audible. And Helen, we're going to have to wrap that up right here. And it's been fabulous having you as my guest. I hope we haven't worn you out. I hope your voice... Is still with you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me.
2: You have always been very good, very kind, very gracious. I've had I just want to say quickly I'm so grateful for the support I get from the Jewish community, the Jewish Literary community. You've really taken me under your wing and I've very much appreciated.
1: So thank you and goodbye. Thank you, Go thank you and so it. much, Helen. And happy reading everyone, and I'll be back. In two weeks' time, have a wonderful Shabbos and have a wonderful Shavuot next week.